Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church Podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is going to be kind of our jumping off point. We're going into a third in a series of marriage, biblical marriage. And we talked about a few weeks ago before Easter what the definition of biblical marriage is. How do we define, not we, but how does the Bible define what a marriage is? And among other things, we saw that it is a covenant, that it is a one flesh union, and that it is an act of God. That's what marriage is. Now, what is marriage for? We saw that the week after that. We saw that what is the purpose of marriage, biblical marriage. One of the among many reasons we saw was procreation, having children, bringing them into the world, and our sanctification, that marriage is more for our holiness than it is for our happiness, making us more like Christ. And we also saw that its ultimate end and ultimate purpose is the glory of God. What we're going to look at today is how does it all work? How does it function? If that's what marriage is and that's what marriage is for, then how does it work? in time and in space with real people who are sinners, saved by grace. How did the function of marriage happen? Obviously, there's a lot more in living the Christian life or living the life as a Christian husband or a Christian wife than we'll be able to get into this morning. And it's not as if that once you become a wife or a husband, that somehow the other holiness commands or directives in the Scriptures no longer apply or don't carry as much weight. And we know that they still do, that everything that's written to all Christians certainly applies to Christians in marriage, but what we're going to do this morning is hone in on those commands given primarily or rather particularly to those who are Christians who are married, Christian wives and Christian husbands. What the, what the New Testament does for us is it tells us what does a man who is a Christian, what does a woman who is a Christian do, how do they function when they become married? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, honing in on particular commands that do not apply to those who are not married, but certainly do apply and are handed to you to apply to yourself once you are married as a believer. So how we're going to do this, we're going to follow Ephesians 5. It's going to be kind of our framework, essentially our structure, and we're going to have two companion texts alongside of it. We're going to follow Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3, looking at how they parallel the message, overall message of Ephesians 5. But that's what's going to be directing our study this morning, the passage that we read earlier for our Scripture reading. So let's go ahead and just get right on into it and see where Ephesians 5 picks up when it starts talking about marriage in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then follow me to Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then 1 Peter 3.1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So here we are, right in the middle of it. There's no run-up, there's no nothing. Every time the Scripture speaks to marriage, it always speaks to wives first. And there's no lead-in, there's no softening, there's just no, it's just right into what it is. The dreaded S-word. Submission, uh, one that we run from in the 21st century, one that we're afraid of. We don't want to talk about it. We avoid it. It's kind of become a trigger word for us in a sense. But what is it? What does that word mean? In Greek, is the word hupotasso. It means to determine to place under. That's what a wife is to be doing, determine to place herself 
under her husband. Submission is not the husband's to demand in any way. It is the wife's to willingly and lovingly give. That's what it is. And it does not mean that she should never speak, never think, never make decisions, never contribute. That's not what it's speaking of in any way. It's not speaking that all women are supposed to be submitting to all men. No, this says to your own husband, one woman to one man. And it never, never means that you go around the Lord Jesus Christ. That following your husband does not supersede following the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't avoid this word and we can't allow it to be a trigger word because we, we, we don't want to talk about it, but nevertheless, we still want people's marriages to be healthy. We want them to be strong. and want them to be biblical. But this is kind of symptomatic that, that we do a lot of things, that we want the Bible's end results. We want God's end results, but we don't want to go about those, getting those results in the ways that God has laid out. We know that the end result would be a healthy and, and vibrant marriage, and we want that, but we're not going to go the way in which God has, has given us. Because then if we did that, then we would sound misogynistic. We would sound chauvinistic maybe. Or, or maybe we, but really the Bible, but we, it would sound like we regard women as somehow less than men. Even though Titus 2, 3 through 5, says that if older women are not teaching younger women in the church to do this, then the word of God is going to be reviled, mocked, scorned by the outside watching world. It says so. Verse 3, Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good. To who? So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. It's a consequence if it's not happening. The word of God will be reviled. So here's the problem. We know that God and the Bible values and esteems women as co-heirs, as equals with men. We know that all Bible-believing Christians know this to be true because God did not consider his image as fully represented until there was a female human form. Because in Genesis 2.18, he looks upon Adam alone and says, this is not good. And what he commanded the, the people to do, the couple to do in Genesis 1.27 couldn't happen until God proceeded to make Eve. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That we can say with all confidence as the church of Jesus Christ that God is not authentically imaged in the world if there is not male and female. Together, we fully and authentically image God. And we know this because we know from the New Testament that women are both co-heirs of salvation. The same salvation, 1 Peter 3, 7, speaking to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Why? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And this is true because the gospel of Jesus Christ destroys all man-made evaluations and systems and structures that put more value on certain groups of people and less on certain groups of people. Galatians tells us that. In chapter 3, 27 and following, for as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So we know that to be true biblically about 
women. But then when we come to a passage like this, it talks about submission and marriage, we interpret them to say that women are not valued and not esteemed in the eyes of God. So then you just take the lazy way out. You, you come to resolve that God can't value me and esteem me and at the same time tell me that my role in a marriage is to be a following role based purely upon my gender. So since those two things can't coexist, therefore these verses do not mean what they so plainly and clearly say that they mean. Isn't that just another version of Satan's lie uh, in the Garden of Eden to Eve? God can't love you and tell you that you can't have what you want. So since we know God loves you, therefore, what God meant was that you can eat this fruit because it can't coexist. God can't love you and tell you no or tell you to do something that you don't already want to do. He can't, that can't both be true, whereas the rest of the Scriptures would say those absolutely are true. And where are we even getting the idea that the one given authority is intrinsically better has more value, is more worthy, and to be more esteemed than the one who has no authority. Do we believe that about children? That, 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 that are children lesser human beings and of less value because they're told by the Bible to submit to their parents? Do, we believe that, do you believe that about yourself as an employee, though you are told by the Bible to submit to your employer and somehow you are of less value and you matter less and you're less human? Do we believe that about citizens and the government, particularly Christian citizens and the government? When the Bible commands us to submit to the government, does that mean that we are less valuable, that we are not fully human like the people who are the government? If we don't believe that in those places, then why would we believe that when it comes to marriage? The, the call to submission is not a statement of inferiority in any way. So then why do we get so bent out of shape when we take that idea and we bring it into marriage? Well, there can only be one way. It's because we've been discipled by the world instead of by the Word of God. That we've chosen to disobey Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we're not conformed to this world. We've chosen to just passively be pushed into the mold of the world and now we have imbibed and conformed ourselves to the wisdom of the world. This is absolutely not true. What, what does this mean? Submission means that something has to be disagreed on. Because if everybody agreed on everything, there wouldn't be any implication for submission. You wouldn't need it. If two parties always agree, nobody has to submit. If everybody just agrees, we drive 20 miles an hour in a school zone, then the state didn't have to put up signs. But because some of us believe we should be driving 50 miles an hour in a school zone, they put up signs, and the, and the scriptures say, submit to the government and what it says. And if God does not institute a leadership structure of some kind in the church or in the state or in the family, then we have chaos. We have the book of Judges in real life. So we can't say along with the world, we can't echo along with the world that, well, there's enough examples of domineering husbands over trembling wives that we just need to toss this idea out altogether. We can't say that with the world. We're not free to edit or override God's word in any way. When governments go bad and they oppress the people, the solution is not anarchy. When the church goes bad and abuses her authority, the solution is not to abandon the church. 
So the same thing is true in marriage. Because it's true that thousands of husbands throughout the history of the world have been domineering and controlling and abusive does not mean that we are free to toss out Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3 and Titus 2. We're not free to do that because we continue to believe that God meant what he said. And what he said is always means the best for you and the best for me. God doesn't need to update his word. That what he told his children is the perfect way to glorify him. And it's the perfect way for you to live in harmony and in peace. But let's be clear, though. The Bible's teaching on this is not like it's easy. And the Bible's not saying, hey, this is easy. If you have to be commanded to do something in the scriptures, it means you, you already don't want to do it. This is not something that the Bible is somehow saying, oh, women just prefer to never think for themselves. Women just prefer to, to just follow mindlessly. So this is just kind of how they're made. If they, if they weren't commanded to do it, then it would mean that that's how they were made. But we nevertheless have that command. And honestly, none of us instantly tanks to submitting to authority, do we? Nobody likes to submit to authority. Do you speed? Of course you do. Because you are more important than everybody else on the road. And you have to get somewhere. And they didn't consult you when they put that sign up. You didn't have any say in that. Now, do you skip for joy when your boss gives you another mindless task? Of course you don't. He's an idiot. And if they would just let you run the company, you would make ten times more money, and everybody would go home at five. Did you just exceedingly, exuberantly, happily submit your taxes a few weeks ago? Of course you didn't. Those bozos don't know what to do with your money. And if America would just ask you, we'd be out of debt and everybody would have free Wi-Fi. None of us likes to submit to authority. That's not natural for any of us who are sinners, which is all of us. And, and, and in the context of marriage, that's what we're talking about. And that, that the scriptures even call the wives that, that what you're called to do, it may even be frightening at times. First Peter 3 says so. First Peter 3 verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, meaning one to Christ, without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah is put forward by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter as the iconic biblical wife. And it's our job to figure out why she's being put forward as, as the example for all wives to emulate. Why is that? If you go back to Genesis, then you start understanding what Paul or Peter rather means when he says, don't fear things that are frightening. Do we remember the story of Abraham and Sarah correctly? Do we remember that twice 
Abraham prostituted his wife out to pagan kings. Coming into a foreign land, he said, hey, uh, you're really beautiful. Even though you're this old, you're really beautiful. And they might, if they know that you're my wife, they might kill me. So why don't you pretend to be my sister and go ahead and just sleep with the king? Twice, at the beginning and at the end of the covenant, Sarah's done that. Often in our circles, it seems like in the Sunday school world, Sarah is put forth as kind of, as a bad reputation. And Sarah, you know, well, she laughed when God promised. Abraham didn't laugh when God promised that they were going to give a child, uh, that they were going to have a child. But Sarah just is cackling on the other side of the tent because she has no faith. And Abraham is this saint, which we know Abraham was the father of faith, and he plays a massive role in redemptive history. But nevertheless, we look at Sarah in kind of a demeaning way. But you know what I think why she laughed? I don't think it was a jovial gut belt laughing like that's so absurd. I think it was a smirk that came from a place of pain, honest and real pain. That happened in Genesis 18, and I think that that pain goes back to Genesis 16, because I think what might even be worse to endure as a wife, I mean, being thrown out like that to two different kings is pretty bad. But put yourself in Sarah's shoes, if you remember the story of how her life unfolds. Genesis 12, you're living your life, you've been married to your husband for several decades, you're living in the Ur of the Chaldees. Then one day, he rips open the flap of the tent, comes in and says, there is this God. He spoke to me, made these promises. We're moving. Where are we moving, Abraham? Somewhere you'd never heard of that you didn't even know existed. Thousands of miles away from anybody you're related to and anybody you've ever known. That's where we're going to go. So they just go. They haul off on this cross-country journey from basically Iraq to the, to the, to the west coast of Israel. And that's where you end up. And then another day, when you're there in the place you've never heard of and never been before, husband comes back into the tent one day and says, guess what? The God, the God who talks to me, the voice in the sky said, you, we're going to have a kid. We're going to have a son, even though we've had decades of barrenness. That's what's going to happen. So now picture yourself as Sarah. The one thing that gave a woman in the ancient world value was her ability to bear children. And she, you have failed at that for decades. You've failed at it. You have no value. And then your husband comes in all excited. You're in a place that you've never been before. You know nobody. You're living there, and he says you're going to have a kid, and you know I can't. And so then in that moment of intense pain, shame, low self-esteem, tremblingly, you say, well, I can't do it. But maybe through my, my maidservant, Hagar, you could maybe have a baby. And instead of Abraham grabbing his wife by the shoulders and looking in her eyes and saying, if this God will do this thing, it will be through you and me. I know this is a culturally acceptable thing, but, but this God has changed everything. And if this is going to happen, it's going to come through you because I love you and you alone. Is that what Abraham said? No. He didn't say that. He said, without hesitation, he hops right up, takes your maidservant on the other side of that tent flap into your bed while you sit outside, knowing what's going on, crying and weeping and mourning your miserable 90-year existence. That's Sarah. This colossal woman of faith. She is the one put forward as this is the example of a godly wife. It was scary following Abraham into the land of Canaan. 
thousands of miles. You've never been there before. It, they were dark days having to now live for at least 13 years watching this maidservant prance around as the chosen one in her mind and then this son of hers that she was able to bear first try. It was frightening to be offered up to two different pagan kings in order to save her own husband's skin. But God protected her. And if this is the model of a godly wife, if this is what it looks like to be a submissive wife, it takes what it takes to please God as a wife, how could we ever see the submissive wife as somehow less valuable or of low esteem? Who is more righteous in this scenario? Who is more pleasing to God in this scenario? According to the scriptures, being a wife is not a life of mindless, drone-like following. It is a called to boldness of faith and rugged dependence upon God as you place yourself in his hands when you follow that man that he's given you. And you know how the message gets even better, continuing on in this, in this reality from the Old Testament to the New Testament, is that Abraham's not put forward as the example that husbands are supposed to follow. Amen? We're, we're not following Abraham. He's not who we emulate. Jesus is who the Christian husband is put forward to emulate. Ladies, do you find Jesus to be a domineering figure? Do you find him to be cold and distant, power-hungry and macho? No, he's none of those things. But is he strong? Is he humble? Is he servant-hearted? Is he clear-minded on the will of God? He's all of those things and more. That, single woman, that is who you're looking for. Don't you ever settle for anything less than that. That's who you're looking for. And married men, that is who you are commanded to be like. Ephesians 5 keeps on rolling to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way, husbands, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's the command. Colossians 3.19 says the same thing. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. First Peter 3.7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. From those three passages, we're going to pull out five commands for husbands. Husbands are commanded to give themselves up for their wives. They're commanded to cherish and nourish their wives. They're commanded to not be harsh with their lives, but live with them in an understanding way and to honor them as weaker vessels, as co-heirs. The first thing that Ephesians 5.25 says is, gave her himself up for her. First thing that Paul tells husbands, and this is just as just as blunt as what he told the wives. You love her exactly like Jesus loved the church. No other religion in the ancient world had any kind of directive, any kind of command for husbands to care for their wives or to love them in any way. You barely had to keep them alive. Not only does this ancient religion say to do more than that, it says that your perfect example is God himself in the flesh. And how did Christ show his love for his church? He died for her. He died for that one bride. He didn't have multiple brides. His one laid his life down for her. He told us that there is no greater love. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus, are you willing to do that for yourself or for yourself for us? 
John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He loved his bride so much that he was willing to lay down his life for her. Now, husbands, I know in here you're welling up with pride. You got your John Wayne image. You got a tear in your eye. You're like, I'll take a bullet for that woman. I will, I'll dive in front of that bullet. You believe that on your wedding day? You believe that when you were engaged? You believe it now? I sure hope so. But when was the last time somebody shot at your wife? I know you're willing to do it, but when is it happening? You're willing to take this bullet, and we're prepared to stand in her place in front of the firing squad, but are you prepared to get up and help with the dishes after a long day at the office? I mean, we're ready. We're ready to fight off a home invader that's coming after our wives. I position myself next to the door, and I got an AK-47 behind that. I got them ready to go. I'm not always going after my wife, but are you willing to paint the guest room on Saturday? During football season? I mean, this is what it's coming down to. What are we talking about? This hyper-dramatized command from the scriptures, we got it. We're there. I mean, I'm ready to be the hero. I'm ready. If anybody comes shooting after her, he's going to have to shoot through me. But what was the essence of Christ giving himself up for the church? It was humiliation. It was giving up what he was rightly entitled to. Once Christmas happens, Easter is inevitable. The humiliation is becoming a human being. You're God, and now you're going to become a human being? You might as well just go ahead and die for our sins. I mean, you've already been humiliated beyond anything that anybody could ever endure. That's what Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says. Have, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to his equality with God, though he had it and was rightly entitled to it, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men. If Jesus laid down his equality with God, something that he was rightly entitled to, he was God. He was rightly entitled to never have to set that down. But if he did set that down, then we husbands who are rightly entitled to nothing that is good must be willing to lay down everything for our wives. You don't deserve to come home and rest after a long day. You don't deserve to maintain 10 different hobbies. If Jesus didn't maintain the right to take a nap after preaching and healing for hours on end in the middle of a rainstorm, but instead woke up with his panicky, unbelieving disciples and calmed the storm, then you can go help your wife bathe the kids at night. If that's what Jesus did, then that's what we can do. And you know what? Your wife might take advantage of that. She might take advantage of that kind of servant-heartedness, but you still have to do it. You're still commanded to do it. She may never reciprocate that level of servant-heartedness, that level of, of giving up yourself. That may not ever happen, but that doesn't change what you're commanded to do. It doesn't change whether or not you follow Christ. Does the church ever abuse the grace of God and his blessings? Yep. Does God ever remove his grace from the church or stop laying down his life for the church? Nope. And so we're to do the same. We're to nourish and cherish. The passage goes on in Ephesians 5, 29. How did Jesus nourish and cherish? What did Jesus say he was, when he's leaving the earth, essentially leaving his bride in the hands of some uh, other servants, some under shepherds, what does he say? You need to do this. 
if you're going to be the caretakers of my bride until I come back for her, what did he tell Peter you have to do? Nourish her. Feed my sheep. And what are you feeding? What is the food that, we're command- that, that, that the under-shepherds are commanded to feed the bride of Christ? It's the word of God. So husbands, in nourishing, we're responsible for making the word of God present and central in our homes. We are responsible for that. We initiate biblical conversations. We are studying our Bibles to bless our wives with the soul-nourishing truth of God. And we cherish them. How did Jesus cherish his bride, the church? By protecting her, by never leaving her, never forsaking her. Christ obtained eternal security for his bride. He obtained that for her. So we as husbands are to be emulating that level of cherishing by providing a level of human security. Now, that doesn't mean that if you ever lose your job, you've, you've failed as a husband. Or if you're in an economy or in a job sector that's just really volatile and you keep losing your job, that that doesn't mean then that you're failing to provide security. Where is your heart in that? I've known plenty of women whose husbands are just in a, an odd time economically, can't seem to hold on to a job or things like that. But you know what? They still feel cherished. They still feel protected because it's not limited to financial security in any way. Are you making her feel safe to open up emotionally? Not just saying, hey, don't worry, I won't post any of this on Facebook. I mean, that's, that's bare minimum. That's, that's beyond obvious. But do you care enough to listen and to empathize? Does she feel of the utmost value to you? Because there is no possible way that we as the church could ever feel more valuable to Jesus. What, what, is he, what did he withhold from us? God said in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare anything, not even his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We could never be more valued to God. Therefore, that's what we're supposed to be doing with our wives. And thirdly, we're not to be harsh with her. Now, so, now the points three, four, and five, they connote in our day something that we have to pause and clarify. Because three, four, and five speak to the fact that God made two genders and that those genders are different. And you didn't have to say that five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but you have to say that now. That God made two genders and those two genders are indeed different, though they are similar in many ways, that they're different. That men are different than women and boys are different than girls and that's all there is. And we have to stand for that in our church today because our world now is trying to erase the distinction of genders in just every possible way. That you can't limit it to just two, and there's no way you can say that women are like this and men are like this. Or that women should do this or men should do that. You can't say any of that. I mean, what's really driving the abortion re- reality? It's that I want to sleep around and live in a moral lifestyle with no consequences like a man, and that's my constitutional right to blur the line and eradicate any difference between me and a man. That, that's what we're after. I mean, we're, and then when people are silenced for speaking out against the, 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 the definitive unfairness of biological boys competing against biological girls in athletic events, you're silenced for saying that that's wrong. I mean, the Connecticut State Track Championship in the women's division has been men in high school two years in a row. I mean, that's, that's the world that we live in, but we can't take them any seriously until they finally integrate the jails. You don't really believe that until you're going to say all people are going to the same prison. Because eventually you're going to realize that men and women are different and that we should be respecting and honoring and upholding that. 
And so as biblical Christians, we're not only mandated to acknowledge the limitations of gender to male and female, but that they have different roles, particularly for our purposes this morning, in marriages. Husbands are not to be harsh with their wives. The converse command is not given to women, although we would assume that it's there. But husbands are particularly told, do not be harsh with your wives. And why is that true? And women not given the same command. It can only mean that God made men somehow stronger to be providers, to be defenders, which takes some level of moderated aggression. That if it goes unchecked and undisciplined and uncontrolled by the Holy Spirit, then it can turn into harshness in the home, which is exceedingly unbiblical and is sinful. And God says, don't do that. You're not free to be that way. Husbands, you're to speak to your wives differently than you speak to other men. The way you speak to your wife in a non-harsh way acknowledges God's unique creation of her and that she's different than you. She is not responsible to match your gruffness. You are responsible to not be harsh. Why is that so? Because 1 Peter 3, 7 says that we need to be honoring our wives as a weaker vessel because God made her more delicate than you. This is not to say there's not strong women in the world. And this is no commentary whatsoever on the mental capacity, the skills, the functions, thought processes, or anything of women. But nearly that one is bigger and one is smaller. One can carry more weight, one can carry less weight. That's a fact, that's a reality. And to be sure, there have been eras of history where women have been demeaned as helpless and frail and simpletons who can't do anything. And that's not what being said here in the scriptures whatsoever. What is being said is that when God wanted to image himself in gentility, in sensitivity, in nearness, in relational connectivity, in softness, he did that in women. And husbands are commanded to honor that. Honor in the, in the Greek is the word time, which means to esteem or to revere or to attribute the highest value. That's what husbands are supposed to be doing with their wives. That how they've been made is to be attributed to the highest value. She's different than you, and God intended it to be that way in the most beautiful way. First Peter 3, God is saying to the husband, I made you bigger, I made you stronger and gruffer, but you lay that all down with her. You lay that down with her. You handle her with the utmost intentionality with the utmost gentility. And that may mean going to ballets and ballrooms with her. Or it may mean going to deer blinds and ball games, depending on what kind of girl she is. Nevertheless, in that whole process, you're acknowledging her as different, as softer than you. And you live with her in an understanding way. You see that? Husbands have been commanded to understand your wife to, to educate yourself on the subject of your wife. You know why she wasn't commanded to live with you in an understanding way? Because you're not a mystery. You're not. You're a bicycle. Everything you see is all there is. If the bon ride is bumpy, check the tire pressure. If the bike won't go, the chain fell off. If you keep the chain grease and the air, tire, tire's aired up, everything will work and just be fine. She, however, is an iPhone most beautiful piece of pristine technology you've ever seen with capacities you can't even imagine for communication, for connectivity, for, for, func for, for functionality and productivity. But on the inside, you have no idea what's going on in there. You don't know how those parts work. But what you've been commanded to do is to understand how the iPhone works on the inside. 
That's your job. Now, this iPhone is yours. You have to understand and study to know what she's about. She doesn't have to do that with you. She figured you out on the first date. It was easy. Not so with her. You're in for a lifetime of learning. And of all the skills you know for bicycle maintenance, very few, if any, are going to translate to iPhone upkeep. You can't take a pedal wrench, a tube of grease, and a chain whip and figure that out. You need precision tools. And you've been given them in the Scriptures. You've been given them in the Holy Spirit. And God's commanded us as husbands to quite literally study our wives to know them better and respond accordingly because she responds to things differently, responds to joys and trials and pains and conflicts differently, surprises differently. She communicates differently. She processes information differently than you do. And as the leader of the house, as the husband in the marriage, you are to draw that out of her and then to treat her accordingly as to what you've learned as to how she functions. That leads to Ephesians 5.33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's how it's supposed to function. Love and respect. Returning and being sent constantly. Living in harmony. Not unison, but harmony. Like puzzle pieces. You only get the whole picture if the pieces are different shapes. That's what makes them connect or complement each other. We are different, created to fit together. And if either one of you is not present, then we don't have a marriage. And if either gender in the world is not present, then we don't have a fully imaged God. But if she is functioning in marriage in her God-ordained role, and he is functioning in marriage in his God-ordained role, then there exists a peace, a divine usefulness, and a personal fulfillment that can be found nowhere else. Quite literally, can be found nowhere else. And all the directives in the Bible and the scriptures that God has given us, do any of them have the, the uh, underwriting that's just like, yeah, God was like, ah, oh, man, I wanted to get a better addition to you guys, but it went to print sooner than I had time to edit it. So if you find a better way, feel free to update this as you go. Or is God all sovereign, all knowing, and all powerful? And did the word, is the word that he gave us everything that he wanted us to know, exactly how he wanted us to know it? We believe that to be the case, and therefore it has to be that in marriage. Therefore, ordering our marriages according to the biblical specifications always leads to God being most glorified and us living lives that are most satisfying. That's the only way God does it. This is the gospel in marriage. You, you can't have this. You get to this and you see this pristine and beautiful, glorious picture of what marriage can be, and it's all impossible if there is not the gospel. Because a husband cannot love his wife like Christ loved the church if he's not saved by that Christ. And a wife cannot submit to her husband as she would submit to Christ because she does not know that Christ. Every time I do premarital counseling for any wedding that I'm going to do, sit down and ask them, tell me your story, how you came to know Christ, and explain the gospel to me. Because that's where it has to all begin. And I've been in there before, whether you got one person who's clearly saved and one who's not. I tell them flat out, this isn't going to work. She's never going to be able to follow you because she's not following Christ. He's never going to be able to serve you like Christ did because he doesn't know Christ. You're not going to have this marriage. The gospel is what empowers that. The gospel is what makes that possible. You can't carry out these biblical commands if you do not know the biblical Christ. See, this is central to everything, that we can do these things 
these high, lofty callings, because we are working out the salvation that Christ is working in us. We work out because he's at work within. That's why two sinners who have the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives individually can come into marriage and never have any fancy counseling, never have any fancy directives, can come from wrecked homes, can come from all this horrible reality and still, still have a fruitful, faithful, fulfilling, God-glorifying marriage because God's word does not return to him void and the Holy Spirit dwells within them and is interpreting the scriptures for them. So that's what we hold to, that all of this goes back to the gospel. Otherwise, the image of marriage would not be Christ and the church. What is the image of Christ and the church? It's I died for you, and if you have faith in me, you will be saved for eternity as my bride forever, as the one I take care of, shelter, love, provide for forever, by faith alone in Christ alone. So that's where we, that's where we end, with the exalting of Christ and his church. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.